and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you. My wife, Teresa, over here, um, and Kurt's up there, as Micah said. And this has been a real honor to do this. This is all because of Micah and Elena's relationship. And we actually, Micah grew up in Incline. My, Micah, how long were you going to Cornerstone? Uh, like 12 years. Oh, so you don't listen to the sermon? You go back there? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> um, so, I know, opportunity, you got to take it when it happens. Um, we, we actually, we're going to hire Micah to be our worship leader. We only do a half-time job then. And he said, sorry, this church is full-time, so you guys got a good guy. But then he introduced us to Elena. So we have this relationship now, the two churches between uh, Micah and Elena as worship leaders. And then Kurt and I have got to know each other, and he's a wonderful man. You're a blessed man to have Kurt and um, Micah as some of your leaders. So let's pray as we get going. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this worship. And we, we hope and trust you have been honored. And we want to now to open your word. So teach us, Lord. And... Um, Show us what we need, whether it's encouragement or conviction or, or, or just to bring some kind of hope because you are with us and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I want to take you on a journey today. I actually want to take you on a grand journey from, from we're going to start in Genesis chapter one, so get your Bibles out, Genesis chapter one, and we'll actually go all the way to Revelation chapter 22. And so, so the whole Bible in an hour and a half. Yes, it's a 10,000-foot view. Um, so, so last week, and, and by the way, Kurt, Kurt came up with this outline for these two, the sermon series that both churches are doing, and the idea of God with us. And so last week, we introduced this idea, um, starting in two particular historical sections of Isaiah, you know, 7th, 8th century BC, where God, Isaiah is prophesying to Ahaz about a sign that a virgin shall be with child and give birth and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then Matthew grabs that 800 years later to apply to Jesus. So, so those two particular historical contexts then introduce the theme that God is with us. I want to step back today and start in Genesis and show you God's plan, this grand adventure that God has of God with us. It's important for us to, to grasp this because in Matthew chapter 1, the, the angel said to Matthew, excuse me, to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then he quotes the passage from Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we know that God saves us from our sins. But the concept of God with us, is it all day, every day? With his people in general and with you and I particularly in the, in the struggles of life, you know, when... when when your job stinks and your boss is a dweeb, is God, is God with you? And a lot of times, a lot of our frustration in life is our jobs, is it not? But it's really one of the minor issues in life. It's really no big deal compared to other things. You know, there's many things in life that 
when your children get sick, for example, you can't do anything about it. And now this, is it RSV it's called, I think, is going around and it's just, it's just heart-wrenching for a parent to see their child. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? Um, Teresa and I are hitting a stage of life. We've, the Cornerstone Church has started a process of which I've been deeply involved in to find my replacement. After 29 years, we, we have found that person. That person's gonna be on, uh, on site in January. And, and I will kind of ride off into the sunset about Easter time. So after 29 years of ministry, um, we've decided to, to what, what is next, God? So we've been saving and things like that. And then, of course, what's the best time to retire? When the stock market is down 35%, that's the best time to retire. So, so um, God, where are you? Are you with me in this? Are you with us in this? Can God be with us? In all, is God with us in all circumstances, in our health? Many of you are at a stage where your parents are getting older and maybe you're burying your parents. All of life is a struggle. And I told the the first service that um, a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So it was like like a non-thing to me. So they said, you need a a prostate removed, a radical prostatectomy, it's called. So they removed it. I said, great, let's move on. And... um, then about three, four, five months ago, PSA numbers went up, and they said, it's back. And now it's time to deal with this in a more radical way. Um, and so, so in this potentially life-threatening disease, because men, the number one cancer that kills men is prostate cancer. And, and because why? Because we don't deal with it. So I said, okay, God, why does this have to happen to me, God? Why me? Why not you? Why, why do I have to have this? You should have it. <laughs> you, you ever been there? You ever done that? I think the better question is, why not me? Why do I think I'm exempt from the hardships of life? The larger overarching question is, is God with me in the midst of this? And does he have a purpose? So I want to step back and look at the, the grand adventure called the history of salvation, the Bible. This grand trip I want to take with you today. And does God really have a plan to make all things right in the world and in my life? I want you to think of a movie. In a movie, if today, if we are in a movie script right now, we are in a certain frame of, of this moment in time. We can look at this movie each frame at a time. You gotta, you gotta think not digital, but, but film, you know? So, so each frame in my past, I can walk back and look, oh, I see what has happened. I can see what God has done in my life. But I don't know what the next frame holds. I don't know, I can predict what the next minute, hour, two days hold, but I, I can't be certain. So, but God stands outside of this movie. And how many frames there are to history, not, not just your life, God already has it planned. In Ephesians chapter one, it says that before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to adoption as children. So before the foundation, before he created anything, he said, I'm gonna save you from your sins. So God has his grand adventure for us that I want to look at. Genesis chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there, please. 
the foundation of this adventure, the foundation of this great movie we're going to do. And when you think of movies, I want you to think of epic movies, usually based on epic books. The Lord of the Rings, three books that ultimately ends in the end of it with evil being triumphed over and the king established. How about the um, Chronicles of Narnia? Seven books, and the last book is called The Last Battle, where Aslan is seen for who he is, the Messiah, and he's established as the king, and life is all put right. That's what scripture's gonna show us. But let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter one, the foundation, the beginning of this story is we were made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is now on the sixth day of creation. God has made everything. Even on the sixth day, he's made all the mammals. So now he steps up and says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women are full image bearers. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said, then be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the foundation to start with is who are you? Fundamentally before God, who are you and I? And we are image bearers. And this story is very interesting here. Not this, this, this is a true story, by the way, when I say story, because this is the first opening scene of that great epic story, that epic um, um, adventure. And days one through six, as he creates light, and then he creates the waters and the firmament and the birds and the sea creatures and all that, the terminology is let there be. Let there be light and what happened? There was light. By the way, when I, when I teach, I like you to talk back to me. If you talk too much, I'll tell you though. But um, so let there be light and there was? Excellent. Gets, gets to day six, after he creates the, the mammals of the world, he changes his terminology, God does, and says, let us make. He doesn't say, let there be man and women. He says, let us make. It now turns personal. And we'll see in chapter two of actually forming, as though God takes his own hands and forms um, Adam. So it's a very personal thing that God has made us in his image. And you've got to understand something here when the author of this book is Moses. He's writing this book during the time when God is using Moses to lead Israel out of captivity in Egypt into the promised land. They've been in Israel, excuse me, they've been in Egypt for 400 years and they've been exposed to the idolatry of Egypt for generations and generations. That's what they know. And pretty soon, in a couple of weeks, Kurt and I are going to teach on Moses at the burning bush. And Moses doesn't even know God's name. So God's name has been forgotten by Israel. What they know is Egyptian idolatry. And God has to correct them. Just like the New Testament tells us to renew our minds, God has to renew Israel's mind on what is true about creation and him as the creator. So where the Egyptian idolatry is a stone um, mason or a, a, a goldsmith or a carpenter would take some raw material and shape an idol out of it and they'd put it up on the mantle of your fireplace and you'd bow before it and said, there is my God. That represents the God I worship. And maybe that is my God. So 
because the exact same word is used. We're made in his image. The exact same word in Hebrew is used here that that is an image. Those idols were called images. And God said in the second commandment, what about images? What did he say not to do? Do not make an image of me. You've never seen me. But he made an image of himself. It's you. It's me. We are the image of God. It's not this physical body. It's something much deeper. And we haven't got time to mine it, but it's really worth giving a lot of thought to. What does it mean to be an image of God? How am I so different than the rest of creation that I reflect God? We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Every day, God says it is good. Oh, by the way, he doesn't say it is good on day two. That's something you should read it through this creation story again and say, why doesn't he say it is good? He doesn't say it's bad, but he doesn't say it is good. Day one, three, five, and six, one, three, four, five, and six, he says it is good. After he made all the, the mammals, he says it is good. Then he makes humanity, he makes men and women in his image and says it is very good. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. We represent him. We are his viceroys on earth. He's given us a commission. That commission is to multiply, fill the earth. We've done pretty good at that. I understand we just passed eight billion. But he's also said now to have dominion and rule over this earth. I make you my image bearer and I put you on this creation of mine and I entrust you with it. So you with me on this? I want you to understand this, that your value to God, you have inherent value to God. Do you know the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic? Intrinsic is I, I see myself as intrinsic value. God, I have value, you owe me. By my very existence, God, you owe me. What do you say to that? It's a laugh, yes it is. Extrinsic is this, God created me and placed in me his image and said that on that note, I value you as my image bearers. So it's not natural to me, it's given to me. We have this, this theology sometimes that, oh, you're just a worm that crawled out from under a rock. You're just lucky God loves you. And I don't want to minimize sin, we'll look at that in a bit here. But understand God's deep, deep love for you because you are his image bearer. Never forget that. And the value and purpose that comes with that. Let's look at Psalm 8, how David saw this. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is a beautiful thing. God is saying, of all my enemies, I'm going to use babies and children to shame my enemies. You know, as opposed to the warrior. So I, I, that's a, an incredible thing. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So a really interesting thing here. When you go outside at nighttime and you look up to the stars and if it's a real clear night, sometimes you can see what looks like clouds and it's actually the Milky Way of which we are a part. And it's this phenomenal, overwhelming sense of I am so insignificant. And you and I have way more understanding of astronomy than David had. And he's blown away. Look at this you've made. And in verse five, yet in light of all this, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. What is man that you should think of him? In reality, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some, some translations say angels, some translations say God. The, Greek, the Hebrew word is Elohim. Um, 
and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Then he says it again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first verse and the last verse are the exact same words. In Hebrew poetry, that's called an inclusio. And it really is one of the main points of the whole psalm. What they start with, what you close with, is the primary point. But what's in the middle is you and I, who are made in his image, who are crowned with glory and honor, exist to bring him praise and glory. That's what his image, but remember an image is supposed to reflect and look at the reality. So that is our identity. Mankind, God crowned mankind with glory and honor so that we would give him the glory. That is what it means to be an image bearer. We are to reflect his heart, his character, and his actions. So the first act, the first scene in this grand adventure, this great movie we're going to look at today, is his creation of you and me. That he has made his image and placed it on earth. He's going to put them in a garden, we're going to see. And he's given them a commission. Multiply, fill the earth, and rule in my stead. Be my viceroy over all this wonderful creation I've made. So, God was with us in the garden in an unhindered relationship. He created us in his image. He puts us in this garden, and he's with us in an unhindered relationship. Look at Genesis 2, 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed the man. Form is the idea what a potter would do. It's the same verb used as a potter. Form the man of the dust from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So right there I think is a very beautiful poetic way of saying he breathed his image into you and you became alive. You're not an idol on a shelf that's dead and lifeless. We are living creatures to reflect the living God. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So in some way, some would say actually, just as idols are put in temples, the garden, which was the, the, like the most beautiful spot on earth, you might say, became his temple that he put his image in. But his image is living, breathing, because we have the breath of life from God. Make sense? So that's where you got to talk back to me. Make sense? Okay, all right. So it goes on. This is my, I'm, I'm, I'm running through this fist fast, you guys. Verses 15 and 17 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall, early, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. The opportunity is endless. He's, he's put a banquet before them and said, all of this is for you. You can eat any of it. But, the next verse... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All of this is my good creation for you. But this one thing is not good for you. Don't eat it. Well, we know the story. God walked with Adam and Eve in an unhindered relationship. We'll see that in chapter 3, actually, that specifically, that God walked with them in the garden. We don't know many details of what it was like to be human prior to sin, to the degree that sin has affected our abilities. Clearly it brought physical death. 
How much has it affected our mind? I want you to think about that. Don't, don't, have you ever heard that they say, I don't know how they know this or if it's even true. Oh, you only use 10% of your mind. Have you ever heard that? Is that true? I, I don't know, to be honest with you. But, but here's a point I, I want to make. Whatever the limited capacities of our mind because of sin, Adam and Eve didn't have that. Can you imagine what it is to be fully human without any effects of sin? And the theologians call it the noetic effects of the fall on the mind. The ability to think, to, ration, to rationalize, um, to create is hindered by sin. Selfishness comes in. What would it have been like for Adam and Eve before sin came in to be God's representatives on earth and their ability to use their minds to oversee his creation? I think it's one of those things you step back and go, my goodness. And he's given all of this for me to enjoy. He's just asked me, that is not good. That tree is not good for me. Don't eat from it. Well, they did. The effects of sin on our relationship with God. So now we're kind of coming into act two of this grand adventure, this great story of what happens when Adam and Eve don't do what God said. You remember the story in Genesis 3.1? After Genesis 2.28 says Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. That, that, that verse is to show us this purity they have and this harmony there is in their relationship. And chapter three opens up with, but the serpent was the most crafty of all the creatures that God made. And the serpent comes along and isolates Eve and first says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? So first of all, it causes doubt in Eve. Then, then Satan says to her, oh, he lied to you. He's holding back from you because you won't die if you eat from it. He's keeping it for himself. I'm interpreting there, obviously. So in the end, Eve is deceived. She eats. She gives to her husband, it says, who was with her. All it says, and she gave to Adam who was with her and he ate. And then the next verse says that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked, so they made, took leaves and covered their nakedness. So remember 2.17, surely the, the moment you, the day you eat from this tree, surely you will. What's the definition of death? The louder. Separation. That, that, that is a, you know, all those other ones are correct, but, but at the heart of death is the idea of a separation. Surely you will die. A death took place right there. There's a separation now between Adam and Eve. Chapter 228 said that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Well, why would you cover yourself in front of your own spouse? Because there's a self-awareness now. Something's wrong. Now I'm gonna hide. So now a death has come in some way, some kind of separation has come to the harmony of Adam and Eve. Let's read how the separation comes from God now. Verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day. I chose that translation. It's really uh, walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. But it's, it's just a vivid picture here. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So God only, God, only talking God does here is four questions he asks Adam and Eve. Where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Can you imagine the emotion here on Adam now? This is the first time he's been afraid. Sin has come in. He's separated from his wife in some way he wasn't before and now he hears God walking. Fear hits him. 
I was naked. Something's wrong. The Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? This is like a, a parent interrogating a child. The parent knows fully what happened already. You're just trying to get your child to fess up. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Well, right there is clear proof of, um, so I, I use a synonym for sin. I'm not trying to water it down. I'm trying to, to put a, a, a nuance on it. Sin is equal to selfishness. Let me reverse that. Selfishness is what sin is. Not your will be done, but my will be done. So in his selfishness, in his sin, Adam goes, not my fault. You gave me her, you did it. The man, so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me and I ate. At that point now, he goes on to give the consequences for sin. But I want, you, I want to go to the end to show how this, this death has taken place. Then we'll look at the consequences. Verse 22, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So the, the fig leaves weren't enough. They didn't do justice. God had to kill an animal to cover their shame. Thus foreshadowing the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the death of Jesus on the cross. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God, Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here's death. If the garden represents the place of unhindered walking with God, that God is with us. The way it was designed to be, his image bearers walking with the genuine image, the reality behind that image, but sin now has created a death. And there is a relational separation represented by the fact that I hid from you because I was naked, he told God. I blame you and my wife. I'm not accepting responsibility. All these are indications of a death. Then God now physically removes them from that which represents his presence, the Garden of Eden. Separation, out you go. And you don't get to eat from the tree of life. So is this a consequence, a punishment? Or is it possible it's an act of grace on God's part? What do you think? Is it punishment or grace? Both. It's right there in my notes. Both. See what he said there? We need to exclude them from the tree of life because they eat from it, they'll live forever in that sinful estate. So God removes them as a consequence, but also it's one of the first acts of grace because there's hope. So now, in the midst of this, we have God bringing consequences. He first brings consequences on the serpent, then on Eve, then on Adam. Adam's consequences is, now you gotta work by the sweat of your brow to eat your dinner at night. Before the garden would work with you, now it's not gonna work with you all. Thorns and thistles are gonna come up. You have to work your tail off to eat. And guess what, Adam? You're gonna die, you're gonna go back to dust. From dust you came, to dust you return. On Eve, her consequences was increased pain in childbirth, and now a tension in the marriage relationship. Before there was harmony, now there's tension in marriage relationship. 
That's verse 16. But he gives Satan's consequences in 14 and 15. And Satan, as pictured by the serpent, is going to crawl on his belly and eat dust. And you're going to be hated, by the way. How many of you like snakes? Wow, this first service only had one. We got a half dozen in here. Well, you're not going to like my next point. You, snakes are to be hated. Um, to, 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 you know, um, actually, the only thing I hate worse than snakes is spiders. Um, but the image here of this serpent is, is not good. So this is what, this is what now verse 315, this is what's called the Proto-Evangelium, and it, which is a Latin phrase for the first gospel. And so right in the midst of, of the sin and the consequences for the sin, God puts this kernel of hope, this message that's cryptic, but it's pointing forward to the cross. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Very cryptic. But let, let, me, let me read it again and I'll interpret some things. I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. Between your offspring, which ultimately is Satan and all the demonic realm, and her offspring, which ultimately is Jesus. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when you step on a snake's head, what do you do to it? You kill it. He will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. So when you walk by a snake and you get bit on the heel, and if it's poisonous, you may die, but most likely you won't. So there's this thing, Satan, you'll wound Jesus, but he's going to crush you. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? If you saw that movie, there's the point where he's in the garden. And Mel Gibson adds some poetic license to this um, that, that in this case I agree with. He's in the garden, Jesus is. He's asked his disciples to watch and pray with him just for one hour because he said, my soul is under so much anguish, I think I'm gonna die from the anguish itself. And so Jesus goes away from them as they're, they're supposed to be praying, but actually they fell asleep. And so he goes away from them and he falls on his face. In the movie, they literally has him on his face. It's not, it's not that famous picture you see where Jesus is like this, you know, in the garden. Jesus is on his face in the movie, crying. Is there any other way? And the poetic license Mel Gibson puts in there is Satan is over there whispering to him. It doesn't say that in scripture, but I think it's a true thing that the extension from the temptation in Matthew 4 is carried on now, the temptation in the garden, because Satan is saying, you don't want to do this. You think you can save humanity? You can't. And as Jesus is on the ground three times, my God, my God, is there any other way but not my will be done, your will be done? And in the movie, the third time he stands up and a snake crawls out from under his garments. And what does Jesus do? Crushes its head because Jesus is resolute now. He's going to the cross and he knows the cross is the place where Satan is defeated. Satan thinks he's gonna win. Satan, Satan thinks, oh, I'll take out the Messiah, I'll kill him on the cross. I'm, I'm, little, I'm adding some things here. Scripture doesn't specifically say that, but I think it's true. That which Satan thinks will take out the Messiah is actually that which takes Satan out. It's an incredible truth. Because remember, what happened in the garden? I didn't tell you this before. I didn't mention it. Adam and Eve were the vice regents. They were the ones who were given dominion over all the earth. But they gave in to Satan and functionally handed Satan the keys to the kingdom of earth. It says that in 1 John 5, 19, that the devil 
all the world is under the power of the evil one. The devil has a measure of control over the creation that Adam and Eve were supposed to have. And now, so listen to this. The first Adam disobeyed and brought death. The last Adam, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus, the last Adam obeyed to the point of death. You get that? The first Adam disobeyed and brought death. The last Adam, Jesus, obeyed to the point of death. By doing so, he overcame death and destroyed the devil and his work in our lives. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, likewise referring to Jesus, partook of the same thing. He became, he became incarnate, God with us. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, the original image bearers of God, who God had commissioned to have dominion over his earth, gave the keys away to Satan. That which Satan was supposed to be one of the angels who marveled at God's creation, they handed him the authority and now became his servants. And every human being born has been a servant of Satan since, whether you know it or not. So, to reverse this, God became human, God with us, in order to reverse that back again. And Jesus became human for one reason, to live that life of obedience, to qualify to be the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the cross and takes away from Satan the keys of death in Hades. So a man gave it to Satan, Adam, then a man took it back, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of what it means to be God with us. So, let's jump now, however many thousands of years from the garden to Paul. Go to Ephesians chapter two. Hold on, I, 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 I skipped this before. I have to um, read it to you. Ephesians chapter two, one through three. I should have read it before. This idea of death, what's it look like in us today, in you and me? Ephesians 2, Paul says this, and this, this verses 1 through 3 lays out this description of us. I want you to listen to how you and I are described here. It lays out a description. You go, wow, that's, that's harsh, and that's hopeless. Listen to it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's the prince of the power of the air? See, that's who we followed. He now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, Adam gave away the keys to the kingdom, died spiritually, had no relationship with God anymore, eventually dies physically, and passes all that on to his progeny, which we now, however many years later it is, are suffering this. Before Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and how do dead people make themselves alive? They don't. So that's the hopelessness of our situation. We, we were under the power and authority of Satan. Described as sons of disobedience. In other words, what, what's the most, a son follows their father. And if disobedience is our father, how does our life look each day according to God? We're disobedient. And lastly, by nature, children of wrath. 
what a hopeless place to be. But that Proto-Evangelium, that first gospel, is a promise that Paul continues now in verse 4. So think of that, the last phrase, you are children of wrath. And this is where you're supposed to go, can I, can I solve my problem? There's nothing I can do. I'm hopeless. Look at the next two words, verse 4. But God. Incredible words. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Not, but God. So disgusted with you that he's just going to send you to hell. So disgusted with you he's just going to kick you out forever. That's not our God. These incredibly beautiful words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you love you. When did he love you with that great love? When you were dead in your sins and trespasses, when you were under the authority of Satan, when you were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. That's when he had great love for you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, and there's a progression here. He, what he leaves out that he brings in in other passages, that when Christ Jesus died, you died with him. When Jesus was buried in the ground, you were buried with him. And here it says, when he was raised from the dead, you were raised with him. In verse 6, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So we died with him, we were buried with him, we were raised with him, which is what our baptism signifies. And then not only were we raised with him, it says we ascended with him to the right hand of God. In some very mysterious but real way, you and I right now sit with him at the right hand of God, which is a, a, a place of authority, it's a place where his work has been finished, and our salvation is secure because we are there now. I don't understand how that can be, but scripture says that many times our union with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and here his ascension has secured for us the promise of being restored to the garden. So that, verse seven, in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I, ho I hope we never get to the place where God's, God's grace, oh, that's boring. It says earlier in Ephesians, he lavished it upon you. I mean, he just, he just soaked you in. It's like, I eat pancakes, man. I just soaked the syrup, man. The butter, syrup. Just lavish it upon. I know that's a horrible illustration for the grace of God. But the imagery there that God's grace was poured upon you in abundance, it just rolls off of you. Immeasurable, it says here. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When you were dead in your sins and trespasses. So the fallen image bearer is, is being and has been restored. So what I want to do now is, is we have this movie we're in, this grand adventure of being made in God's image and this gorgeous earth we're put into as the, as the vice regents of God to take care of it, to multiply, fill the earth with other vice regents that honor God and worship him. But an angel has fallen and taken many demons with him and that angel tempts Adam and Eve and they hand to him the authority and privilege they had. And then they, by thus doing, put themselves under the kingdom of Satan, which Colossians, Paul says, the kingdom of darkness. So to solve that, I cannot escape this slavery. I cannot escape this darkness into the light. So Colossians chapter one says that God qualified you and me to be children of light 
to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And he did that by becoming human. He came as a man to pay for our sins as a man and to take back the keys of death in Hades from the devil that we gave him, that our forefather gave him. That's this grand adventure. And it takes us to today, but every great novel, every great epic movie has a grand finale. Whether it's the Lord of the Rings in book three, where the king is established, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia, book seven, where Aslan is revealed for who he is in all worlds. If you know the book, if you read the book, you'll love him. Is the Bible, does the Bible have that grand finale? So you guys are studying it right now, book of Revelation. I'm gonna jump to 21 and steal Kurt's thunder. So here's how it plays out. And I want you to see here this theme of God with us. And, th- and look here in these two passages, things that take us back to the garden. Verse 21.1, chapter 21.1. I love hearing the Bible pages turn. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the bride? Who's the husband? Jesus is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? We are. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God, the dwelling place of God is with man. He was with man in the garden. Even when he excluded man from the garden, with the flaming angel, the torch of the, tor- angel with a flaming torch, he still was with Israel. Constantly he would tell Israel, I am your God, you are my people. Even in the midst of all their rebellion. Jesus came, God with us. It's back in its fullness now. The dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anywhere for the former things have passed away. I always say this at my church. If we could pass a microphone around and just spend the rest of the day testifying of the tears we have shed because of the hardships of life. And and, and, and I think think of death. Someone you love dies. And I always say this at every memorial service I do. With great love comes great pain. If you love greatly, that love will bring tears to your eyes someday. Not tears of happiness. Tears that rip your heart out. Whether it's a child that rebels against you. Or God forbid a child that dies. And a parent buries their child. Which I'm sure some people in this room have. And you know the tears you have shed. When we have to bury our parents, we know it's what happens in life, but it still knocks us for a loop. And the tears flow, the sadness, the despair. Is God with us in those times? When the reoccurrence of my cancer came, I really, when the first time I had the diagnosis with prostate cancer, it was really a non-issue, it truly was. I think I I just buried my head in the sand and said, hey, no big deal. and they removed the prostate, all good. And I moved on with life. Then, then nine months later, the PSA comes back up and it's growing rapidly, so they said this is aggressive. 
So Teresa, my wife, has a PhD in Google. <laughs> and um, so she gets on Google and starts reading to me all the therapy I have to go through and the stuff I have to do. And the, the, after it's called chemical reoccurrence, the high percentage of death happens. I go, oh, don't read that to me anymore. Don't read that to me anymore. Um, I'd just rather stay ignorant. Not, I'm joking. Um, but then it hits you. You're mortal. When, I had the, when the cancer was first diagnosed last summer, summer of 21, I was teaching our young adults Bible study. And um, by the way, I understand I, I've preached up to three sermons a day when I was at Grace Church. I know every sermon gets longer, so I apologize. This is way longer than the first service. Um, but I won't be here next week. Um, so, um, now what was I saying? So... Oh, I was teaching young adults Bible study, and I had come back from the, the surgery, and, and I said to him, and, and um, I turned 64 in a couple of weeks, so I was actually 62 then turning 63. I said, oh, I have 19 years to live. And when you're teaching 20-year-olds, they look at you and go, what's wrong with you? Why would you say that? And I said, well, the average white male lives to 81. That's the average age of a white male in America. I was 62 at that time, so I have 19 years. And, and it's still looking at me, and I said, here's the question, not am I mortal? We're all mortal. No, nothing's guaranteed tomorrow. The question is, how will I live between today and that day? Whether it's today, tomorrow, or 19 years away, or 39 years away, if I'm one of those lucky people, if you call, get hit in 100 lucky. Um, the, the purpose of this life is not comfort, it's not wealth, it's not ease. The purpose of this life is to live a life in honor of he who, whose image I bear. And the whole of the New Testament is suggesting, not suggesting, but strongly asserting that everything that happens in my life, the good and the bad, is part of God's design to conform me to the image of his son because at the height of God with us at this day, not only is he with us forever and he is our God and we are his people and we dwell with him, we are now like him to the fullest. Everything Adam and Eve had has been restored and more. So the whole story comes to this grand finale, greater than any novel, that Jesus Christ and our Father sit on the throne, one throne together to reign. And the Spirit is represented as multiple candles, multiple lamps spread throughout. So let's end this service on chapter 22, 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which by the way hasn't been mentioned, I don't think, since, since chapter 2 with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, one throne, the God of, of God and the Lamb, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Originally, God made Adam and Eve in his image and said, I want you to rule over my creation, and I am with you. They gave it away, came under the authority of Satan, 
Jesus became human to pay for our rebellion, to restore us back to a relationship with him, and to destroy the works of the devil. Now it's come full circle, and we, that day, will be restored to him. We will see his face, whatever that means. Remember, God told Moses, you can't see my face, you'll die. On that day, now I am fit to see him as he is, if that's even possible. But that last line, and they will reign forever and ever. Eden has been restored, and God is with us in his fullness permanently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, you've, you've wove this grand story, this adventure, greater than any novel a human could write, any movie we could make, that ends with us being in a greater place than we were in the beginning. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness, the great mercy, and the great love with which you've loved us to do all of this. You've qualified us to share in this kingdom of yours. Now, Lord, help us to have eyes to see how you want us to be your instruments to a broken world, to bring this incredible story to those who don't know it, even hate it, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for so much. And all because of Jesus can we even talk to you. In his name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.